Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. All right, let me pray us in this morning. Bow your heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your love for us, Father. We thank you that um, you wake us up. This Number one, we're just glad that we've even woke up this morning. Um, it's not the case for everybody, Father. And so we praise you for that. We praise you for bringing us in this room as your children, as saints, as people who have been saved by grace and mercy, Father, Lord that you've brought us together and you've actually made us your family. You've you called us your sons and your daughters, Father Lord. And you do this out of your goodness and not because of ours, Father Lord. So we come to celebrate the fact that we are tremendously, overwhelmingly, beyond comprehension, blessed through the work of Jesus Christ. We come to celebrate and exalt you in that, Father Lord. So we thank you for that. We thank you that we are a family. It doesn't always feel like that sometimes. It's not always easy, but it doesn't have to be because what is done by the blood of Jesus is not to be shaken, right? And so the enemy can try. He can do what he wants to do, but the word of God still stands. So we are family because of what you have done. And as we are sanctified, we'll draw closer and we'll figure out all other things and all that good stuff. And we just pray for grace and for love and for um, to be able to overwhelm each other and lavish each other with the same mercy you've given us, Father Lord. You don't just tolerate us, Father. You actually love us. And you put an exclamation point on your love with Jesus on the cross. So, Father, we thank you that we're here this morning. We thank you for what you've done in our lives, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so I feel like I have a lot of stuff today, and I'm going to talk a little bit quick today. So y'all going to have to stick with me. Y'all with me? All right. I need some, I need some, some words this morning. I need y'all to say something like some ums and all that. Y'all know I'll stop in the middle of the sermon and make you do something. So... You ain't got to howl for the preaching. Just if the word is good, if it hits you just right, say ouch. Say something, all right? All right, praise the Lord. All right, let me jump into it. So we have been in um, our series, of course, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, right? I'm finally getting to be able to say that title with ease. That's how you know God is doing something, all right? Praise the Lord. We're growing, right? So the last two weeks, me and um, Elder Tony, we were discussing... um, the wall, right? We were talking about this whole thing about this wall where you hit a wall in your life, in your Christian walk, where you have something that kind of just hits you, overwhelms you. It could be something that sneaks up on you from your past. It could be a divorce that you didn't expect. It could be a tragedy. It could be a sickness where you find yourself in that place where you're like, God, I didn't expect for life to quite be like this. This is not what I saw coming, and I don't know what exactly to do with it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I've been in that place before? Where it's just like, God, how do we move forward with this thing? So we talked about hitting the wall. Um, And so naturally, the wall leaves you with this overwhelming feeling of grief and loss. Has anybody ever experienced grief and loss in here before? All right. So I just want to, we're going to talk about this, this 
to this uh, Sunday, this morning, right? I think one of some of the things I want to hit on is I want to talk about the effects of grief and loss on the church, right? I want to help us identify it, but I also want to help us identify it as a church and the way Satan actually uses it against us, right? So if we go back a little bit, or a lot a bit, and we go to the beginning of time, right? Just a little bit, you know? We see where God flings out the earth in this perfect creation. And in this perfect creation, there isn't sin, right? There isn't sin. There isn't pain, right? There isn't the things that cause grief and loss and brokenness and hurt in our life don't exist. So I think it's logical for us to assume that once Satan came in and sin came into the earth and then everything was altered and grief and loss and this weightiness and these things that try to hold us down are very much meant to break us and separate us from God. I think it's a logical statement, right? It wars against us. It wars against the church. Think about when you usually meet people, right? Like, so if I usually go meet somebody or whatever, you know, like I go have lunch with somebody. When I get home, I see Lana, and Lana usually goes, so, yo, what was up with them? And what she's saying to me is like, yo, what's your assessment of that person? You know what I mean? And so, you know, so we'd be like, yeah, they were cool or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Whatever, they're a little extra friendly. It was kind of creepy or whatever. Kept laughing at all my jokes or whatever, you know? And so we usually kind of hit this kind of surface analysis of whatever it is, or we might be like this super, super cool or whatever. But, like, if we were to actually work through it sometimes, what we're actually talking about is, like, what has grief and loss done in their life? Like, what do we see at the surface right now? You get where I'm coming from? So, like, if they're, like, we're like they're cool, they're kind of confrontational, though. We don't really think into it, and we kind of just kind of cut people off, and we're like, I ain't trying to deal with them. They kind of, I ain't really feeling them. But we don't really always examine, like, there's probably something up under that, right? Like, there's probably that big iceberg up under there that has an effect on their life. If, and, and, and we just, sometimes we just demonize people, but we don't deal with the fact that, like, they might have, like, a glacier of hurt that's actually up under the surface. Some grief, some loss. Their defense mechanisms are up, so to speak. You get where I'm coming from? So, like, one of the reasons we're delving into this topic is because we've been talking about grief, loss, all of these different things emotionally, how it actually impacts us all. And, 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 and as I talk about how Satan would like to use these things, we want to have a high emotional IQ for the building up. Like, the Bible talks about us growing as a church and the church being built up. It talks about our actions, our efforts, our energy. Even when you have to confront somebody, you can actually do it in a way where your intention is to build up the church. You with me on that? But like, I don't know about you, sometimes when people cross the line with me or whatever, I'm like, oh, they got to get dealt with. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just goes in your mind to this just like nasty way where there's no place to actually, like healing is not a part of the conversation. It's anger. Your emotion overtakes you, but it completely pushes God's idea of the church being built up. And, and, and the Word of God talks a lot about the church being built up, and it talks about us having patience and different things because God is not unaware that this is going to be a hard thing and Satan is going to push against us, but he's like, make your posture always about the build up. Y'all with me? Okay. So it can expand our mercy and grace towards the broken and give a greater esteem for the healthy, pe healthy people in our lives, right? 
we learn how to deal, if we have a healthy or a high IQ relationally, our mercy and grace towards people can expand. All right, so facing grief, grief and loss, right? It's counterintuitive to run towards pain. Would y'all say so? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know about you or whatever. If there's a fire, you touch that thing, it's like, oh, hold on, Jack, right? But fire can be good for you. Like, I don't know if you remember the scene in Rambo when he got shot in the side and he put the gunpowder in there and he lit that baby and it went on fire. Nobody? No Rambo people? Well, yo. It was a good thing in that. Yo, you ain't, nobody saw Rambo. Dag, man. There you go. There you go. You know what I'm talking about. Y'all be having brother feeling old up here sometimes, man. I be bringing up all these old movies or whatever. All right. But God also uses the heat to heal us. That's my point, right? I, um, but it doesn't make sense to us for us to, to, to step into the pain. I was watching this documentary, um, a Vice documentary, um, just recently. It was talking about all the violence in Chicago. And there's this interesting thing. They were interviewing this guy from there. He was a rapper. Um, and, you know, everything he talked about was murder, killing, drugs, everything. And... You know, so they're showing him, he's going from like trap houses, he's on the block at one point with his homeboys, somebody gets shot, and so they tell the cameraman, hey, we gotta go, somebody's got murdered up the street, there's a war going on right now, we gotta get the heck out of here, and they take off, and it was pretty exciting and crazy, and all that stuff at the same time, but at the end of the documentary, he's talking, and he has this moment where he's talking about all the murdering, the killing, and he's talking about his kids, and then he starts crying. And he says, he looks at the camera and, he, and he's like, man, he's like, I'm sorry. Cause like, he, he did, just didn't seem like a crier to me in my book. All right. Um, he, he, he had a moment where he said, what did he say? He said, he said, this is not normal. It's like it hit him in the middle of the interview. He's like, this is not normal. And then he wiped his tears and he went back to gangster mode. Like, this dude has seen some grief and some loss in a tremendous way, but he has actually made it a practice of how to work past that thing. You feel me? He doesn't deal with it. His, his mechanism is we push through this, right? And it's true, there's times that our defense against pain is helpful. It can shield us, right? But let me tell you when you know it's become a problem for you. When it becomes a part of your identity, when your pain becomes a part of actually who you are as a person, when it, start actually, when it starts steering who you are, right? When it starts holding what God wants to do with you at bay, or it starts sabotaging relationships and hurting people you actually long to love. You feel me? Like maybe some of the married people may know what I'm talking about, whatever, right? Like, you know what it is when you're with your spouse and they're like, hey, you do this thing or whatever, and it really is a problem for me, and then you're like, well, you know what I'm saying, and you deflect to something else, but then they're forced to live with it because you won't deal with the thing that they're talking about. Wow. Me and my wife have never had that issue. <laughs> and we didn't have it yesterday, just to let you know. It's when we have replaced our love for God you know, excuse me, when we've replaced yet a love of God with defense mechanisms. 
I'm going to read something out of my trusty book here, if y'all don't mind. Because you know I like pulling out these lists on you just to bring it on home to you real quick and make you feel this, feel this word real fast. I'm going to give you a list of some of the defense mechanisms we actually use. Y'all ready for this? Y'all know the tactic. Don't look at your neighbor. Just look forward and just do one of these. Or if you got coffee, just keep it up by your face and just keep looking. But don't look, don't look to the left or right. And if, you don't, if you're with your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, married, don't be jabbing nobody, all right? What are the symptoms? Denial, right? Or selective forgetting. Selective forgetting. We refuse to acknowledge some painful aspect of reality externally or internally. For example, I feel just fine. It didn't bother me a bit that my boss belittled me and that I got fired. I'm not worried in the least, all right? Minimizing. We admit something is wrong, but in such a way that it appears to be it appears less serious than it actually is. My son is doing okay with God. He's just drinking once in a while, um, when in reality he's drinking heavily and rarely sleeping at home. Blaming others. We deny responsibility for our behavior and project it out there upon another. The reason my brother is sick in the hospital is because the doctors messed up his medications. Blaming yourself. We inwardly take on the fault. It's my fault mom doesn't take care of me and drinks all the time. It's because I'm not worth it. Rationalizing. We offer excuses, justifications, alibis to provide an inaccurate explanation of what is going on. Did you know that John has a genetic disposition toward rage, towards rage that runs in his family? That's why the meetings aren't helping him. No, John has rage. It's just, okay. Intellectualizing. We give analysis, theories, and generalities to avoid personal awareness and difficult feelings. My situation is not that bad compared to how others are suffering in the world. What do I have to cry about? Distracting, we change the subject or engage in humor to avoid threatening topics, like I'm doing right now. All right, why are you focused on the negative? Look at the great time we had as a family last Christmas. Becoming hostile, we get angry or irritable when when References made to certain subjects. Don't talk about Joe. He's dead. It's not going to bring him back. Y'all identify with any of those? Boy, my pen ran out of ink with the check marks. It's, we're making light of it, but it's an extremely sharp tactic for the enemy to come at our throats and to come at the throat of the body, right, that God loves. We often say that we're, um, you know, we, all, we always use the word woke, right? And so in reality, we're like, I think we're very woke at analyzing other people's sins or when they cross us. We can break it down so good, right? And we love to. We're like, you know, you know, you know what I think the deal is with so-and-so? And we just run with it. We turn the Dr. Phil on them, right? But man, I don't know about you, but I have such a hard time getting to the real deal with my own self. Does anybody else feel that? Do y'all go through that? It's crazy. The blindness are on really, really hard. Our, diver- our diversion tactics are usually blame and rationalizations, addic- addictions, avoidance, right? We pretty much search for, 
spiritual shortcuts around our rooms, right? So when we talk about the body and how the body is to come together and actually esteem others higher than ourselves, what does it look like for us to not be in reality concerning where we're at with this brokenness? Like when we're dealing with grief, when we're dealing with loss, when we're dealing with regret, right? Because the result of them is surely sin if we're not letting God deal with them, right? They alter our identity. They alter who we are. And the refusal to deal with the reality is just beginning more sin in our lives and more rebellions and rebellion in our lives, right? Romans 14, 23 says this. It says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Like whatever we hold back from God because we don't have the faith to step into it. That includes, you know, I think a lot of times we think about like doing great feats for God when we look at things like this, but like that means even when it comes to self-care, when it comes to truth, when it comes to stepping into the light with our sin, whatever we don't actually do, like out, out of faith, ends up in it being sin, right? It just is what it is because we have to alter truth in some form or some way, or we have to start doing whatever we can, stacking the cards to keep our lie to ourselves. We have to put on fake faces and fake smiles for each other. I've done it before. And when the Bible talks to us and it says Satan's strategy is to sift us like wheat, I don't know what people think of in their mind when they hear scriptures like that, but like sifting us like wheat can very much look like undealt with emotional baggage having its run in us, in our relationships, with our kids, in our church body, all of those different things. Y'all with me so far? That's what it looks like. We have to take it serious. And so I think approaching it, one of the hard things about approaching the conversation of how this grief, how loss, how hurt, how it comes out as sin, is so hard to actually do because um, it a lot of times doesn't start with us opening our eyes to it. It starts with somebody else actually pointing to it. How many of y'all like when people point out your sin? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> and I think what's so hard about it is that it means that we're not perfect, we're not infallible. That's a title only given for God. But we as humans, we actually, it's the sin of Satan. We want to knock him off his throne. We're Christians. We're saved by grace. So quite logically, our salvation comes about from us walking into the light with a mountain of sin that is not fixable. Yet, functionally, often inside of the body or with believers, we can't take anybody pointing to our sin. And therefore, it begets more sin, right? Something we end up doing is we end up demanding other people take away our pain, right? We show up with, at church and we have expectations that are not realistic. 
we want, we bring our baggage and we want people to actually carry the baggage, deal with the baggage, fix it, and they don't have the capacity to do it. Only God the Father has the capacity to do that. Am I right? But we, but we do walk around with these expectations. We definitely do. And there's no way to actually, I think some of the naiveness that we end up having is that um, I think that in America we've done so good at painting the picture of like church with smiley faces on it, right? Like we act like, you know, we have our like cliche phrases like God is good all the time. You know what I mean? But we don't walk in the light and we don't tell the truth about what we're actually dealing with. Everybody in community with other believers will experience some type of disillusionment and grief that accompanies their church experience. Y'all agree with that? Like, people usually go from church to church and they're like, it's not, I'm not being satisfied. And I think one of the hard things or whatever is that, like, I end up in these conversations a lot all the time. And people's faith is just, it's dwindling. And then they start to take church off the table or they start taking God off the table. It's not abnormal. It's what happens when we're dealing with grief, when we're dealing with loss. It, that's the kind of effects it actually has on us. But like nobody can actually respond. No other human can actually fulfill these expectations. A husband won't do it. A wife won't do it. A best friend won't do it. Mama won't do it. Daddy won't do it. Our kids won't do it. Like there's only one person that mends broken things. Right? central message of Christ is that suffering and death bring resurrection and transformation. It's the model. We look at Jesus on the cross, he dies. Unless something goes in the ground and dies, nothing is produced, right? So a lot of times the realities that we are naive about or the things that we believe that is, you know, based out of naiveness, they end up having to die, right? I don't know about you, but I want to just think that the world is not as bad as it actually is. But it is. And there is no way for us to get around grief, loss, people dying, the fact that we're going to die. And it's in the Bible. You look inside the Bible, right? Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, right? Pretty much the whole book is about grieving. Solomon is looking at the brokenness of this world in Ecclesiastes. Two-thirds of psalms are complaints to God. Ruth is grieved, is grieving the death of her husband and her father-in-law. Jesus weeps over Lazarus. David grieved over the death of Saul and his best friend Jonathan. And let's look at God as he looks at the world soberly. In Genesis 6-5, he says this. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved them to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. We serve a God that actually understands the idea of grief. In his soberness, when he looks at the world, he grieves. When he looked at you, lost in your sin, he grieved. But he responded with Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? So I think sometimes we've taken the story of Jesus and we put it on the Hallmark cards and we just make it so sweet like we were just so adorable. But like we were dead in our trespasses and our sin. In rebellion. We didn't deserve God's, God grieving over us. We were in rebellion. Right? I don't know about you. If somebody hits on one of my daughters at this school, when I get that phone call, the only grieving I'm doing for whoever hit my daughter is, Lord God, when I get up to this school. That's the only grief I feel. Right? I'm grieving what I'm about to do to somebody. That's what I'm grieving. That's the way that usually feels. I'm just keeping it real with you. But God... With, 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 with a love that surpasses our understanding, actually grieves for us. He understands what it is. That thing that you're dealing with, that thing that hurts, that grief, that loss, that thing that happened, we don't hurt for it more than God. It's important for us to know. Because the first thing that happens in the way that Satan start, likes to use it is he likes to start swinging at God and who God is. Right? He starts to undermine God's love for us. Any of y'all been there before? Where something like so devastating happens or has happened where you're just like, it makes you have to step back and you're like, God, I don't even know if I know you like I thought I knew you. you do, do you get where I'm coming from? Like, God, I didn't have a box for this. When I, when I stepped into you and I'm worshiping you and praising you and I'm thinking about my Christian life and onward Christian soldiers playing in the back of my head, I didn't see this detour coming up on the road. I didn't see this happening. I, don't, I, don't, I feel like my faith doesn't have footing to actually walk through this thing. Luke 19, he says this. He says and, when he says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will leave and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you, uh, upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
God is walking through this thing. And when he surveys everything, when he looks at the land, when he looks down at us, he is not naive. He is very sober about the depths of wickedness and sin that exist on this earth with us. And I think a lot of times when we are painting this picture of God and Christian life and what we see in America and everything else or whatever, it sets us up to draw a picture that is not real, that's naive to how the depths of wickedness actually work. And so Satan gets to sneak up on us all day long, right? We've, we've been normalized um, the deflection of our pain, our grief, and our hurts, and it hurts us so bad. It hurts the church so bad. It hurts us in our individual relationships so bad. It is hard to esteem others higher than yourself when you actually don't know yourself. It's hard to esteem others higher than yourself when you don't love them enough to give them a credibility to actually speak into where they see brokenness in your life. Right? What do we get if we have a community where nobody actually trusts anybody? Where God is actually smaller than our emotions? Where can you go from there? You can't go anywhere. It's destined to be broke. If God is actually not big, right? So let me give you an idea, for instance. When we usually find ourselves in this place or whatever where, like, we've been just ramshacked by some event or maybe some things from the past are coming up, if God is small, then it's going to devour what we know God to be. But, like, when we look in the Word of God, it says, let God be true and every man a liar, Right? That actually, is, that actually is for yourself. Sometimes the way you have to deal with God is that you have to deal with him like, God, I'm telling myself, I'm, these lies are coming in like a flood, and I need you to help me to stand still and, and trust you while who you are expands for me. Because I'm seeing you, I'm seeing you about this, this big. I actually don't believe you can dunk the ball right now. I don't think you got the ups right now. Do you get where I'm coming from? And so we face a lot of problems where we just pull God down and we question him like he's a man like us. But he's king of kings and lord of lords, and he sits on high. And he's not, he, he is not caught off guard about any of the tragedy and things that avalanches sometimes. And not, not only that, in his word, he doesn't promise us that it's not going to happen. What he promises is eternity with him. He tells us in the Bible, right? He tells Timothy, he says, he says, Yo, gird up as a good soldier, soldier in Christ. He says, suffer for this gospel. Right. You see, he, he tells us suffering is coming. But the thing is, is that we don't use those type of words in church often. Amen. And Satan has hijacked the narrative of the truth of the gospel with, let's put on the smiley faces, everything is all good and everything is all right. Yo, everything is all right, but everything ain't all right. Everything is going to be all right because his promises are sure and they're true through Jesus Christ. He says there's not one thing you're going to actually lose on earth that you're going to ever be thinking about when you see him. I think I was telling you all a couple of weeks ago, if I'm riding with my kids and we're passing McDonald's playground and they're begging me like, Daddy, let's get on the play, please, Dad. Like you keep passing all these playgrounds. You think I care if we're on the way to Disney World? I'm rolling. I ain't even answering them. Just chilling, drinking my Capri Sun. Like, yo, who cares? Right? Because I know what's actually coming. 
I know what's coming. This is, this is, this is positionally vital for a believer to be planted in this truth. The eternal perspective is extremely vital with your walk with God and what Jesus affords you eternally. Because if you're actually looking for it to be just a sweet road, there's going to be a lot of dark nights of the soul during this walk. We don't know when death is going to pop up. We don't know when sickness is going to pop up. Last year I was at a conference in Orlando called Exponential, and one of the pastors there, his wife suddenly died. That thing that's a horror story in our mind that we sometimes have told us ourselves, I'm a Christian, I'm depositing my good, so of course God is never going to let anything land on my doorstep. It's not what the Bible tells us. And we don't even get to determine what good is as followers, as his children. He determines what good is. Right? So when we pull that back from him, then we end up making him really small because now he becomes a slave to our desires. Y'all with me? So you just think about when you drop grief and loss into that dynamic, the way it'll make, make us lunge at God. And I don't say that to shame. I'm not hitting this thing. I'm dealing with this right now. Yesterday was the anniversary of one of my best friend's death. I'm still working through it. But I'm just saying, like, we have to be aware as believers because Satan wants to sift you like wheat, right? right? Let me read something to you real quick. To, I want to drive, drive home this, this eternal perspective, right? I'm in Ecclesiastes 2.16. I'm going to read a piece from, two, uh, from, from uh, chapter 2. Then I'm going to read a piece from chapter 3 real quick. Um, it says, For otherwise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. This is Solomon talking. Solomon is the baller of all ballers of all ballers. I don't know how to tell you that. I don't have the words to explain the dynamics of his wealth, right? It's beyond anything we can comprehend, not just because of his financial stature, but because God literally anointed him with wisdom that's beyond anything we comprehend, right? You know, you ever have that thing where like, I don't know about you or whatever, but I think it's part of our, uh, um, our, our heart's yearning and idolatry that's in it, but like, I want to be good at everything. Does anybody feel like that? Yes. I want to master everything. I do, for real. I like, I'm just schizophrenic with it. I want to be able to skateboard well. I want to rap. I want to, I want to do um, computer programming. Anything that just comes on TV, I'm like, I want it. It's idolatry at its finest. It's wrong. I'm going to just tell you it's the truth. But like Solomon was like cut from a different cloth. Like homie was nice at everything, right? So he could be walking with Steve Jobs, like kicking it or whatever, and then walk by some people and they doing a sight. He's like, oh, let me come spit a verse with you real quick. And then kill it. You know what I'm saying? And just straight kill it. You know what I'm saying? Like he was, he was nice. He could move and groove any way he wanted to, right? He's got it all. But listen to what he's saying. He says, I hated life. Number one, he's being honest with God. He says, I hated life. 
because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after a win. This, this is somebody who's accomplished and done things that's beyond our comprehension. He's done a little bit of it all. He's done everything he could do to satisfy himself. He's built things. He's built castles, palaces. He's built gardens. He's had the best food you can think of. He's rode in, he's rode in the best chariots with spinners. He, inv he, he invented that. Things you don't even know about. But nevertheless, but nevertheless, this sobering thing about reality where it will never fill that hole in the heart. He's come face to face with it, right? Some of us keep, some of us, Satan keeps our spills run, our, our, our wheels spinning because, oh, that was good. Okay, anyway, but yo, anyway, y'all ain't peeped that. But some of us, he keeps our wheels spinning because of what we desire to have. So he's always dangling something in our face, right? And we can't be content. And our grief and loss is that we don't get everything we want. Solomon had everything he wanted. Everything he wanted. And still, the outcome is, I hate life. It's grievous to me, right? Let me read Ecclesiastes 3 for you. He says, there's a time for everything. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Then verse 9, he says this, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given, to his has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time, in its time. Now listen to this, what I just told you about eternity. Listen to what he says in his soberness. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do, go and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is the God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people, so that people be fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. What he's saying in this text, first of all, verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You have to understand, like, you have to take into context who's actually speaking. What he has, what he's, where he's been, what he's seen, right? If we're talking about computer talk and Steve Jobs walks in the room, we're all going to be quiet and listen to him because we know home he's been, he, he's seen some things we don't know about, right? You know, he, he's seen some things. He has credibility. Solomon has credibility, right? So when he tells you, I put everything into practice you could ever dream of and there's absolutely nothing there. 
And then when he rounds that corner of dealing with, man, I hate this, because that thing, that idolatry in me that wants to be a king and actually wants to leave this legacy and everybody always praise me and worship me and everything I've ever done and it be about me, he's like, it just won't happen. I'm going to, I'm Solomon, but I'm going to die. These castles are going to crumble. Right? He's dealing with the grief and the loss of facing reality. Right? He's still going to get hurt. God loved King David. He still broke a lot of people's hearts. Right? There's no way to escape that. But when he says that he's put eternity into man's heart, that's that eternal perspective that you have to be grounded in. It's detrimental to your walk as a believer. And then he brings it back to the now. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from, taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear, fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. It may seem I'm getting off topic from the idea of grief and loss, but what I'm trying to make happen for you is that you understand that God is tremendously big around us. He stands as king of kings and lord of lords over your pain, over the hurt that you endure, over the situation that you're actually in. He responds with Jesus Christ on the cross, right? He can drive by the McDonald's playground because like eternity is coming. And he says there's not going to be any regret. He says the weeping and the tears, the eyes are going to, it's going to be wiped away. There's nothing you've lost here, right? If we spend our time chasing after cars and houses and everything else or whatever and grieving over this stuff, when we get to heaven and see what's there, we're going to be like, I can't believe I ran after this garbage. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's beyond comprehension and understanding. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I want to make sure you leave today with this, with this understanding or whatever, like this, this idea of dealing with grief and loss, it's a work. It's a process. It's not no snap of the finger. But one thing that has to be going on in the process is that God has to hover over it as bigger than that grief and that loss, right? So you, don't, so you, you spend time letting his bigness impact you instead of spending your time pulling him down to figure out what's wrong with him. Amen. Do you understand where I'm coming from? All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Psalms 119.50 says this. I'm going to speed through this stuff a little bit, y'all, because I got a little bit. It says, Psalms 119.50 says, This is my comfort and my affliction, that, that your promises give me life. That's what David's proclaiming right there. That in his affliction, that the promises of God, that's the eternal thing once again, they give him life. He's not, he's not, he's not looking past the idea that he actually is in affliction. Right? Like the word says, as it says, we are being comforted in our affliction. And then we take that and we actually comfort people with infl- that are in affliction. So it doesn't remove the idea of affliction. Like I said, we don't talk about it enough in church. This life will delve us some pain. It just is what it is. John's eight, John 8, 31 says this. It says, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Right? The truth is something that you have to steward. Right? You have to muddle yourself up to the mirror and look in it. 
Sometimes the mirror is a friend whose wounds are faithful, right? Sometimes it's a leader whose wounds are faithful, right? Sometimes it's some gossip, and it's not the best faithful wound, but like there's some truth in it, and you might need to chew on it, right? But when you're free in Jesus Christ, right, when, when how well you perform does not determine your righteousness, then you can go and face the music, right? That's a part of our sanctification process for us to be able to walk in the light and hear the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. Look, I love being your pastor. Some of y'all be giving brother too much truth. I mean, y'all be hitting me with some meetings. They be like, I just think that, you know, you, you just could preach a little better. I don't, you know, like, so, sometimes I get hit. I'm telling you, I'm just listening. I don't know. But anyway, that's off the subject. But I'm just saying. But, but listen, but here's the thing. Some of the stuff or whatever, I hear. And I, and I, and, and I take it with me, and, I, and I'm like, there's some truth to that. There's something to be learned about that, Right? May, may not seem like I respond quick enough to people concerning it, but like, I'm like, I need to go chew on that. That kind of hurt the way it was said, but I'm like, what's more important, me, me wallowing in the way it was said, or like, God, you're actually trying to do something because you're looking to sanctify me. If I can get outside of myself and my offense, and I can walk in the light, God, then you can actually draw me closer to you. Right? So, so what does that say then? It says that like where Satan actually wants to use the idea of grief, loss, hurt, regret, all of these things to actually pull us apart from God, to pull down our view of God, to make him small, God is actually looking to use these things to draw us closer to him. That's how he's looking to redeem it. But there's no way to get to this redemption process unless we're willing to face it and walk into the light with him, Right? He brings us to these walls, to these dark nights of the soul for the purpose of, if you trust me right here, if you trust me, I'm going to draw you in deeper to me. You're going to know me more, right? Who doesn't, who doesn't love meeting older Christians that got scars on them, right? Because you know they've had some dark nights of the soul, and they face some things. That's why we go to them and we go, what do I do here? I'm confused. What do I do here? You know why we love Clint Eastwood? Come on, man. The voice sounds like gravel. It looks like he don't play no games. Like he done been through it all. I'm just saying. It seems I'm joking, but I'm just saying. It really works like that. He has grit. I don't know if he's a believer or not, so, you know, we got to X him off if he's not. But I'm just saying, I like Christians with a little Clint Eastwood in them. I'm just saying. An emotionally healthy spirituality, it gives some practical steps for us when we're going through this season where we're in grief and loss, right? I'm going to run these things down to you. I know I said I'm going to speed up, but I'm really going to try to speed up a little bit. 
Just pay attention. Pay attention to what you're feeling and take the truth of what you feel to God. When you're in that place or whatever, when grief is heavy on you, pay attention to what's going on in your heart. If you're like me or whatever, it's so hard for me to get the truth. I got, I got, oh yeah, chilling like a villain. Everything's good to go. Locked and loaded all the time. I could just got my leg blown off. Chilling, just, you know what I'm saying? Whatever, you know? It's always locked and loaded. And it's not the truth. You have to slow down and pay attention. What is really, really real? God does not need my or your flattery. He's God regardless, Amen. right? He can handle the truth, believe me. We're the ones that, 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 that have a hard time, right? You look in the Bible and you see Job, he let it all hang out. He says, curse the day I was ever born. And then in the same breath, he's like, God is faithful. <laughs> While he has boils all over him, right? Whole family's dead, everything. His wife is saying to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He's being completely honest about how he feels. Nevertheless, he will not pull down who God is. He's confused. He's overwhelmed. He is like, good Lord, I don't got words for this. I'm scared of you. I thought we was homies. But you still God. So in the word when we read, when you say, God, don't you slay me. Don't you slay me. It's this thing where we don't play with where God is at, right? Wait in the confusion in the confusing in between, right? You know that place where you're just not quite clear on what to do? You know what I'm saying? Y'all been there before? I know you have, because I get people asking me all the time, what do I do here? And it hurts because I know people are like, uh, I actually want to hear what to do. And I'm like, you need to sit still. Nothing's clear. I believe that's what the Bible teaches us to do. I learned that as a young Christian uh, the hard way. The book talks about the idea of like birthing Ishmael's, where we're not patient enough to wait on God, so we come up with our own plan, and we end up birthing something we're not supposed to birth. We end up starting things we weren't supposed to start. We end up getting involved in things we weren't supposed to get involved in, and what God has for us ends up being prolonged or whatever the case may be because we went and birthed the Ishmael in the process. You get where I'm coming from? Sometimes it's just be still and wait for God. Know that God is God. He will speak. Do y'all know that? God knows how to speak. That's one of the things that I keep tattooed on my heart all the time is that God knows how to speak. So like when I'm in that place where I'm like, God, I need you to talk to me, I have to hold on to that phrase and know that it's true because I'm like, God, when it's time, because like you ever have those seasons where like you know what God is telling you to do? You just know what it is, right? So you wait in that place. Spend your time worshiping. Spend your time expanding your view of who God is. Spend your time at the feet of Jesus, looking at the work of Christ on the cross, right? Resist earthly solutions. Number three, embrace the gift of limits. This is what we saw, we see Solomon doing, right? I'm going to read this to you real fast. This is Ecclesiastes 1. He says, 
all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Solomon, who's spent his life running for things, enjoyment, his idea, his grand idea of how, of what an amazing life has now brought back the limits into his life, that God is King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no dancing outside of that. You understand what I'm saying? He is, he is embracing the gift of limits. He is. There's a list. I'm not going to go through the whole list or whatever, but like our bodies have limits. Our time has limits, right? We need rest. We need sleep, right? There's certain limits we have to respect. It just is what it is, right? My babies don't seem like they got limits. I don't think they ever need to sleep. They don't sleep. Last one is climb the ladder of humility. Your grief and loss shrivels up lies that say, you got this. And if you trust God, you will emerge with a newfound humility that says, God has this. If you, if you face it, if you face your grief and loss, if you look it in the face and you deal with the reality of it, if you stop putting on the defense mechanism as a cover-up, you'll stop perpetuating this idea that you have this and it'll lead you to a relationship and closeness with God and it'll, it'll, it'll have you saying God has this. This hurts, but God is still God. You'll know him more. You understand what I'm saying? You get where I'm coming from? It'll take you on a new journey with like, like, like you ever like when you go on a trip with somebody and y'all, you know, stuff gets crazy or whatever and you know, maybe you get flat tires, I don't know, but then you're like, you know what? They're good people, yo. They have my back. And, like, you know them more because you've been through, like, the fire with them. And you, like, it brings this closeness. God, like, wants to go through the fire with us. I'm going to read one, something else to you, then we're going to close. Um, St. Benedict has something he calls the ladder of humility. I want to read some of the points to you. It says, um, fear of God and mindfulness of him. We often forget the presence of God, acting as if he were not. And once again, we're talking about practical steps for how you actually walk through grief and loss, right? And we're on climb the ladder of humility. Um, doing God's will, not our own and others peop other people's. Um, being willing to subject ourselves to the direction of others. You know, sometimes when you're hurting and you're grieving, and you're kind of lost and you don't know what to do, sometimes you have to render some, yourself to other people's direction. Yeah. You know that? Yeah. There's times when I'm like, I don't trust myself right now. Yeah. My heart is hurting. I don't know whether I'm coming or going. 
And you have to find people you trust and love and be like, I need you to tell me, like, I don't, I don't know how to tie my shoe right now. I need you to help me with everything, right? That's a, that's a wise tactic. Four, patient to accept the difficulties of others. Life with others, especially when living in community, is full of aggravations. This requires we give others a chance to figure out their weakness in their own way, in their own time. It's a big one. Five, radical honesty to others about our weakness, our faults. Quit pretending to be something we're not. Six, we're deeply aware of being chief of all sinners. It's important when you're grieving in your loss, right? When you're grieving and you're dealing with loss, it's important that you realize you're the chief of all sinners. It's one of those things that help us not make God small. It helps us to not swing the sword around and just cut any and everybody and with our blaming and everything else, right? Seven, being pur purposeful to speak less with more restraints. It's a part of that humility and transform into the love of God. Here there is no haughtiness, no sarcasm, no airs of importance. We are able to embrace our limits and those of others. We are fully aware of how fragile we are and are under no illusions. We are at home with ourselves and content to rely on the mercy of God. Everything is a gift. Last week we were talking about how when people come to you in judgment, we talked about the difference between somebody who lashes out to fight back and defend themselves and the person who is sober about their sinfulness and their need for God's mercy and grace that when people come at them, they just go, man, it's a lot worse than what you think it is. Those people have a fragrance, a beautiful fragrance on them, right? I want to read something to you. Um, I'm in with that. My, my, my prayer for us, church, is that I know it's different for us. Like, we've been working through, um, we've been working through this book. Um, we've been going through scriptures. And um, I just, I think about our church, and the biggest thing I think of the concern and the weight that I have in my heart is that Man, Satan, he hates us. He hates what God is doing here. Um, and conversations land on my lap from all fronts. And I don't really spend my time taking too much offense to him personally, but I think I just grieve how malicious Satan is. He takes advantage of every single thing, right? He takes advantage of everything. So it, it requires us to be so sober in the word of God and what the gospel is, right? This is why I always say rehearse the gospel. Some of y'all, y'all hear me, like I've said it before, like when, when the pastor Matt Jensen used to be here, like Matt used to talk about different variances of the cross all day long. And I started thinking he was crazy. He'd be like, you know, we came to the cross Oh, he might have came sideways. You know, he just would go through so, he would just talk about the cross all the time. And I didn't understand it at first. 
But now I, I get it. Like he was rehearsing the beauty of the cross. It's like the angels in heaven when they fly around the throne and they just go, holy, holy, holy. They just keep seeing these angles of, of the king of kings and Lord, and they're just like, oh my God. He was keeping himself in awe. He was working on trying to keep himself in awe, right? And so like in our walk with Christ, you keep yourself in awe by looking at the cross because the cross always tells you like you have nothing to offer. Right? If you're stranded on the island and somebody lets you on the boat, you don't spit at the people on the island. You don't spit on them. Because you know you, you don't belong on the boat. You understand what I'm saying? It perpetuates mercy and grace. Our, the church is built off of that. It's built off of us being intoxicated with Jesus Christ, with what God has done through his son, Jesus. We are saved people. If you know the Lord today, you are people that have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And no matter how it happened, you didn't go looking for him. The Bible says that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He may have let you feel that way, but he actually comes and he rescues you. If you feel like you were born in a family that are believers, then he rescued somebody long ago and the faithfulness has traveled from generation to generation. I want you to know that because I wanted to make you small, small, but huge in the way he loves you so you can lavish your neighbor with it, right? So when we're talking about dealing with grief and loss and we're talking about how it affects our community as a body, Realize sometimes when you're dealing with people and they have ways about them, you're dealing with somebody who's dealt with grief and loss. And realize you probably have some things that you carry too that you're not aware of. But like we have to be willing to actually look in the mirror and we actually have to be able to hear each other, point things out, walk through things. Sometimes we're going to say it some ways in a really bad way. We're going to mess it all up. But our God is big, so it's not the end of the world. Do y'all get where I'm coming from? Right? This is important. It's super important. It's super important. Let me pray. You know, I want to read something to you really quick before we go, this, and I'm going to pray. I know I keep saying this. I promise this is the last thing. It's the last thing, all right? Give a brother some grace. This is it. I just think this is so gangster. But if there's anybody in the room that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, um, I'm not doing this for an altar call right now. What I'm doing this is for is that if you are listening to the word right now and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you want to know who in the world it is that we are talking about, if you want to know who he is, then like when we get ready right now and we start taking communion because that's what we do as a family, and this is what I want you to understand about communion. Communion is actually, some, the Bible tells us to do it in remembrance of him. It's only for people who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We would love for you to take it with us, but we ask that you don't take it with us if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. But we pray one day that you will be taking it with us. We pray. That's like our yearning, right? We're not good people. We serve a good God that saved us, right? But, like, we want you to be a part of the family. We ain't perfect. We don't always get along well. Sometimes we preach a good sermon and go outside and be ready to body slam each other. But guess what? Our God is still good, and we're in a sanctification process. And he's walking, and he's doing things with us, and he's changing us, and he's showing us his son, Jesus. We want to show him to you. So if you have questions, you can grab me after service. Come up to, there'll be people in the front praying. You can come up, talk to them, ask them questions, and we'll do that like that. But I want to read this to you. This is from Charles Spurgeon, and then I promise I'm done for real. 
He says, ah, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. I can hear their tramplings now as they traverse the great arches of the bridge of salvation. They come by the thousands, by the myriads. Er. All right, thought we made that up in the hood. But er, er. Since the day when Christ first entered into his glory, they come, and yet never a stone has sprung in that mighty bridge. Some have been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days, but the arch has never yielded beneath the weight. I will go with them trusting to the same support, trusting to the same support it will bear me over as it has borne them. All right, church, I love y'all.